0: Podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Ethan, how you doing, man? Doing good. I got a tie on today. Just felt like I, they've been sitting in my closet for probably two years without being used. Except for maybe yeah a...
1: the, the listener can't see you, but you look like an accountant today.
0: I thought I looked like a blues brother.
1: <laughs> <laughs> blues brother's good too, I believe that. We've got Corland Allen on the episode today. He's listening to us make fun of each other. Corland is the founder of IndieHackers.com, a, uh, a resource for independent creators of all sorts of applications and, and different products.
2: Uh, Corland, I'm excited to have you on here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I've got some half-baked
0: ideas to dissect with you guys. We love half-baked kind of gooey inside love it (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's talk about this first idea here that
1: you've got that you brought up a podcast operating system
0: should we we give a little preface for the listener we're probably gonna we're gonna drill through like three business ideas in this episode something we don't typically do so be prepared are we giving a preview of the other two are we just gonna make them wait and see I, i think they can wait Yeah, why don't we just jump in?
2: Why don't we just jump jump in? In, Yeah. So, this first idea, I I just wrote down podcast OS. So, backstory as you two know, tons of people are starting podcasts. I think there's something like uh, almost a million podcasts that are actively being published right now. I have no no idea how many are like dead. And people were talking, you know, even just a year or two ago, like, is this a fad? Is this going to pass? I don't think it is. I think it's here to stay. I think it's like one of the big legs of media. I think. People have smartphones, we're all used to our phones, we're walking around, we want some sort of entertainment or something to do when our hands aren't free or when we're driving and we can't really use our eyes to look at a screen. And I think the big three things are podcasting, audiobooks, and just music. And right now, podcasting seems like it's bigger than audiobooks. Like I think podcasting just crossed like a billion dollars in total ad sales this year. So it's big and a lot of people are starting podcasts so people don't really know what to do. Like people don't know how to start podcasts They don't know how to consistently uh, run their shows. They don't know what format to do. They don't know how to book guests. They don't know how to do a bunch of different things. And so I would bet a fair chunk of like these million podcasts that are active right now, just like rarely publish episodes, don't get any downloads, and they're just struggling. And they're probably going to be dead by this time next year. Only to be replaced by new new podcasts.
0: It's interesting what you were saying about it being here to stay. Totally agree with you. Um, It kind of reminds me actually, I'm, I'm noticing almost like a correlation, I can't say for sure, but Bitcoin, right? I remember Bitcoin, the same time that I first started to get interested in podcasting, Bitcoin mm-hmm. was like coming up and there was some interest in that, but there's like a, a surge and then it kind of wanes and then there's a surge and a bigger surge. And I feel like podcasting is maybe in a, it's in a wave of popularity now. It, it may wane, you know, yeah. sometime in the next five, five years or so, but it's also going to increase over the long haul.
2: I think what's absolutely for certain is that people are going to want unique and entertaining audio experiences, whether that will be in the form of podcasting, like I would bet on it, but it's going to be something. And so I think podcasting is here to stay. Anyway, my idea is I I think there should be almost in the same, like some sort of like operating system or program for podcasters to help them grow. So, you know, if you're a salesperson, you got a CRM tool. If you're a recruiter, you have uh, an ATS, an applicant tracking system. If you are a programmer, you use like an issue tracker, like every profession has some sort of tool to kind of help them do their job. Podcasters, we've got like these ancillary tools for like very specific purpose things. Like we can record this podcast on on Zencaster and we could talk to each other on Zoom and I might go to my podcast host to upload things and I might go to Chartable to check my metrics. But there isn't really any tool to help me kind of sit and manage like the day-to-day of what I'm actually doing when I'm trying to prepare for my podcast,
0: book guests manage ads, learn what to do, et cetera. I was going to say, I'm most interested in the CRM aspect of this. You know, you look at Salesforce. Of course, it's not going to be a Salesforce per se, but, you know, multi-billion dollar company, really successful. And then there's all these little bespoke CRM softwares, you know, for say real estate agents and, you know, any any profession these days, plumbers. And you can make pretty good money building a bespoke uh, CRM system that's very customized for a niche. And so what, what does that mean? What do I think of when I think of CRM for a podcast? Especially I'm thinking about a way to relate to your listeners. It's customer relationship management. Like, could mm. I know, for example, that Joe in Montana listened to the podcast episode for five minutes, but then he, he, he dropped off and that, but Mary in Idaho listened for 20 minutes where she dropped off. And I can start to think about how can I engage with these people differently? Maybe I have them on an email list as well. And I'm sort of tracking and, and fostering a more custom relationship with each individual. Is that part of what you were thinking? Well,
1: well, I think that level of data actually would be too noisy. Like Cortland's podcast, I think you get 150,000 or some downloads per month, and you probably are not going to go in or would want to go in every week and and look at that level of data. And for a new podcaster starting out, you probably, it, it would be helpful to get some feedback but you don't necessarily have enough listeners to get a strong signal for, is this valuable feedback? Is, uh, do I really want to cater to Joe in Wisconsin or whatever, his fee, his suggestions for what we should do?
2: So I'm talking about something like way, way simpler than like what you guys way simpler. possibly. Because I'm like imagining like you're an indie hacker out there. Like you're trying to get something off the ground in the next few weeks. You don't have very much money uh, and you're trying to like just get started with something really simple. So it's like, I say CRM not because like I want you to like manage the relationship with your podcast customers or something. I'm saying CRM as in like, it's kind of the place where the salespeople live and it's configured to do what they need. Podcasters don't have a place like that. So what would be the analog. A good example would be, uh, and I kind of stole the name from this, Newsletter OS. So there's an indie hacker named Janelle. And she noticed brilliantly that like a lot of people are starting paid newsletters. And instead of starting a paid newsletter herself, she just wanted to sell a tool to these people who are writing paid newsletters. Because everybody wants to start a paid newsletter, but it's really hard. How are you going to come up with topic ideas? How are you going to uh, find people to read, you know, and distribute your newsletter to, et cetera, et cetera. So she went into Notion and she created kind of a template. And she just did a ton of research on like, how can you make a successful paid newsletter? And she put it all into one giant template. It's got like 30 or 40 different like sub pages on there and tables, little databases. So if you want to start a newsletter, instead of starting from scratch and figuring everything out yourself... You just sort of like pay her 50 bucks for her template and it's got like all the research and all the little structures in there and you can just like start writing and any ancillary sort of information you need it's there. So you can kind of grow your newsletter faster without going over the same pain points everybody else has. She, I think launched this in November, late November. And so it's been like three weeks and she sold over 500 copies. So she's made like 25 grand from this just because there's so much demand from people who want to start a paid newsletter and there just isn't anything even remotely similar for podcasters. So if I was starting this, I would start with just like that, like one sort of combined resource where as a brand new podcaster, I can go and it's going to tell me everything that I need to know about booking guests, recording episodes, coming up with good questions, scheduling, editing, all that kind of stuff. And it's not just going to be like a blog on the internet, but it's going to be a resource where I can actually like type in the names of the people that I'm looking for, type in my questions, and it'll sort of guide me and educate me as I do that.
1: So that's smart. That's starting with an info, info product and then exactly. expanding into some sort of software where you have a continuing relationship with the user. Exactly.
2: And if you made like software, you could do like some really cool stuff. Like there's this idea of a productized service where, you know, you have a service business, but you want to scale yourself. So you start like adding some automated stuff in there so you can service more clients. And that way, maybe you can provide a service to like 10 people instead of three. Whereas I'm thinking this might be like a, a serviceified product. It's like a little further on the other End of the spectrum where it's like it's really a product. Like you can kind of sit down and just work in it, but as the person who owns it, like I can continue doing research. So for example, uh, maybe every quarter I release like a new batch of really great podcast questions to ask your guests, and like in your little dashboard you see like oh there's a new batch of questions. Click it. You can buy it for like twenty nine ninety nine, right? Or you don't. You know you don't have to buy it, right? So I could continually do work, continually research, and basically sell you stuff from within this dashboard while you're working and kind of help you out with growing your podcast.
0: I definitely like the idea of like a mission control. And I don't know if that's exactly where you're going with it. That is but exactly it. Yeah. So, so a place where I can go and, and it might even track step by step, the little things that I need to keep track of like, Oh, have you done one thing to improve your podcast interview process this week? Yes. Yeah. Or no? You know, and like little graphs and charts and things like that, that don't just show you how many listeners you've had and whether you've published an episode, but like, more granular. So you can really have those dopamine hits each time you do something that's pushing you forward. Exactly. For
2: example, like tracking metrics, I think that's mostly a solved problem for podcasters. I wouldn't try to start a business to compete with Chartable because they already have so much momentum. They've already built so much software there. Like I would build this dashboard to be the place where you live. And then I would like set up a partnership with Chartable and be like, Hey, can you expose your API? We'll show a little Chartable graph in our dashboard. We've got, you know, 10,000 podcasters in here and that'll also turn them on the Chartable. So like I'll provide leads to Chartable, maybe even take an affiliate cut and like sort of feature your charts in our dashboard, but I wouldn't try to build that software from
0: scratch. So in terms of action steps, I'm thinking maybe you buy newsletter OS, you see what she did and you say, how can I apply this to the process of a podcast? You create that, you sell it to people, maybe a similar price, $50 a pop. If you can't get that going, you do a little bit more research to find it. Once you get that going, you develop some relationships and partnerships with existing tracking applications and software, and you just kind of grow from there and develop individual products. Any yeah. more like tips and tricks for getting this off the ground, or is that kind of the the basics of it? I think there's a lot of ways to start. Like I would probably start that way because I just
2: like building stuff and I like the idea of products. Some people might be more educators, so I talked to Tara Reed, who's sort of like a no-code educator. And she got her start by working on one startup which she built without code. And this is like 2014 when nobody knew what no code was. It wasn't even a term. And she just like gave a talk about how she was building her startup and everyone was like, "Hold on, like you're building this without code? Teach me how to do it." And she's like, "Okay, I'll teach you for $900." And she had like five people who were like, "Okay, deal." <laughs> and then after she taught them, she had like 30 or 40 people who were like, "Okay, we want the same thing." And so she shut down her business and started teaching people how to build apps without code. Like I wonder if there's a if there's room in the space now for people to teach people to build podcasts, successful podcasts. Because very similar to building an app without code, very similar to building a newsletter, podcasting is kind of a career right now. Like people aren't just starting podcasts for fun. They're starting podcasts because they're pretty sure they can get a lot of listeners and then get advertisers and then make money. And what's cool about this situation is whenever people think they can make a lot of money from something, they're willing to like spend a ton of money to learn how to do that. So maybe a different approach would be, okay, you're not going to build anything. You're just going to spend like, I don't know, six months to a year, like being a podcast coach. And maybe that means you need to do a ton of research, a ton of help. Maybe you're just like a mentor or, uh, you know, a motivational sort of guide at first, but eventually you learn your shit, you get really good and you could probably like sell people on like, Hey, I'm going to help turn you into like an amazing podcaster. It's literally my full-time job. I do nothing other than work for you and probably charge people like hundreds or thousands of dollars ahead. And then maybe from there, like you build out uh, an operating system or a dashboard or something, whatever you want to call it, based on your learnings. And you've got like all these credentials because, you know, you've got these successes under your belt and these great testimonials and you can build a product. So you could start with like a Notion document. You could start as a teacher. I'm sure there's other ways you could start too that are super easy that don't it require you to, like, code a whole bunch of stuff. Zach Babcock, he uh, previous guest on the
1: episode on uh, Run With It, he, um, he's doing exactly that where he has systematized how you launch a podcast and how you grow a podcast and there are aspects of mm. it that, that uh, we were on the receiving end actually as, as uh, we got pitched and a little clumsy, I'd say, <laughs> but, but yeah, that, I mean, he's charging, I think five grand to get all that set up.
2: So there's this idea that I, I, people say it all the time, like don't sell to businesses or don't sell to consumers, sell to businesses. And I think it's the worst advice ever. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's like telling somebody like only eat, green foods don't eat any brown foods brown foods are unhealthy and it's like well like that's not very granular like that's not why a food is healthy or not like whether what color it is like it depends on the nutrients and i think for business ideas it's the same it's not about like selling to consumers or businesses it's it's about selling to people who are motivated to pay for what you're selling and like i was just mentioning like consumers are willing to pay a lot of money even more than businesses for certain things like people will pay like forty thousand dollars a year for an education and so i like the fact that this guy's charging $5,000 $5,000 to take his podcasting course or whatever. <laughs> doesn't shock me because people will pay money if they feel like they're going to learn a skill that's going to make them money in
0: the future. Yeah. A couple of things that are coming up for me, this whole idea, which has come up, even came up on a recent episode where we talked about SaaS boilerplate, creating a SaaS boilerplate, mm. this idea of selling shovels, right? And being uh, meta. So anytime you go meta to an idea, you Gain a little bit of you, what you might call anti fragility, in the words of Nassim Taleb. So, Evan Pagan, who's who's kind of really well known in the internet marketing world, he's even gone so far to name his company Go Meta Media because he's noticed this pattern: every time he goes meta, he creates a better business. But I saw an interview with Nassim Taleb recently give the restaurant industry as as an example. The restaurant industry is anti-fragile. It's going to be, or it's at least robust, and it's going to be there for a long time. But it's only because there's fragility among the individual restaurants. And a lot of restaurants are going to fail, and some restaurants are going to be successful. But you can't have the overall success without the failure of a number. And so anytime you go meta, you can avoid being one of those failures and take advantage of the anti-fraternity yeah, the, the entire yeah, like that. system.
2: Yeah. One of the ways I look at it as is it's kind of two ways. Number one, like, can you save people time, but not just like abstract time, time towards something that they find really valuable. So a lot of people will, for example, create like, I don't know, something really simple. Like I'm going to make an email plugin that'll let you check your email 10 times, like 10 minutes faster a day. And like those 10 minutes are worth a lot. But people are like, well, checking my email, isn't that valuable. So like, I'm not going to pay you for this tool. But if you create something that says like, I'm gonna help you build a SaaS app like five times faster, or I'm gonna help you like get your company incorporated like five times faster, people associate building a SaaS app with something valuable or building a company with something valuable so they're willing to actually pay you if you can like accelerate people towards these activities. So I like the idea of a SaaS boilerplate. Another way to think about it is a save people time doing research. So kind of what inspired me to start indie hackers was this website, Nomad List. Where it was started by this guy, Peter Levels, and he wanted to be a digital nomad and like travel around the world, just work from whatever country, living in, you know, Airbnbs or like little hotels or whatever, and just like living on the cheap, seeing the world while working. And it turned out there were like a few hundred, maybe a few thousand other people who wanted to do this, but there just weren't any resources online for doing this. It's like, where do you want to go? Like, how do you even know if the place you're going to go is safe, if it's going to have fast internet, if it's going to be cheap, what the best time of year is, et cetera? So it just took a ton of work. And like his, whole sort of value proposition was he did that work for you. He just went out. He crowdsourced a bunch of information. He put it on one website. He kept it updated. And now suddenly, if you want to do this, you're going to save a ton of time and research and pain because you don't have to do all the research. You can just go to one place. And that's like literally the entire idea behind indie hackers as well. It's like, hey, if you want to become uh, an early stage founder, don't go like scour the web looking for these obscure stories. Come to one resource where I put it all into to one place. So I think anytime you can like give people a ton of resources in one place, especially if it's something that they really strongly uh, are compelled to do and are willing to spend money to do, they'll usually pay for it or at least use it and rave about it to their friends.
1: So we talked about the starting steps of launching either an info product or creating a list of products, even coaching. There, there are lots of ways to go around it. Once the software itself is built, I'm thinking how much would I pay for something like this? And I don't think that I'd pay more than 20 bucks a month.
0: I think I think the value could go higher, fifty to one hundred. It depends on the level of, of sophistication of whoever you're serving. So you I think say, Cortland? if you if you structure this as an
2: info product, I would do what Janelle did and literally just charge a flat fee to get you in the door. If I went that route, if I was adding like little updates, it's something I I think uh, people don't do enough is upsells, right? Like when you get people in the habit of actually using your particular thing and they're coming back especially if you own the place where they always are like that's such a valuable channel to own because you can sell other stuff. It's so like I was saying like you could for example every month come out with a new package of like really great podcast questions or something and people could easily subscribe to that and maybe it's optional. Maybe people don't want it, right? So my first goal will be to like actually create some sort of system where people are habitually going there to manage and run their podcast. Every time they have an episode, they load up my dashboard And they work from that. You know, every time they're preparing for an episode or trying to find a guest, they load up my dashboard and they're preparing for that. And then I would later on upsell them to ancillary tools, maybe do some affiliate marketing by plugging in Chartable or a different podcast host or something and gradually build up sort of an empire. But I would start very small and I wouldn't be against starting with something that's a flat fee, especially if I was like trying to bootstrap this and I didn't have any savings. Because again, like Janelle just made 25 grand in a month because she sold it for a flat fee for 50 bucks right? If she was trying to sell it for like $5 a month or $10 a month, it would probably take her, you know, six months to a year to get to 25 grand. But like right now, if she quit her job, she could have, you know, three or four or five months of runway because she did it that way. So I like starting with just like a flat fee.
1: Yeah. And the folks though, with the uh, recurring revenue, when you're marketing to aspiring uh, entrepreneurs or aspiring founders, they'll churn, they'll leave after just a couple of months. So rather than that $50 one-time info product purchase that to be honest, 90% of people probably won't use. Uh, they'll just cancel after two months and you only get 10 bucks from them. The other thing that comes to mind along that along that same line is it seems like there's this big chasm between that initial group of aspiring folks and people who are, have made it to the other side and are continuing with their podcasts. And you have to price and, and service them completely differently. And it seems like...
2: I would probably focus almost entirely on like super early stage podcasters, people who are just getting started because I think it's much harder to change somebody's habit than it is to like be their initial habit. Like I was just reading an interview on ND Hackers that we did with a guy who like started a social media marketing dashboard, basically. And it's like a SaaS tool for managing your social media. And he started this like a year and a half ago. There have been dozens of social media dashboards created over the last 10 years. So it's like, how is he able to grow his revenue? I think he does like four or $5,000 a month from 5,000 customers. And it's because he just targeted indie hackers. He wasn't like, I'm gonna go into this agency and completely change the way they do social media with my brand new tool. He's gonna be he was like, I'm gonna target people who haven't done any social media at all. I'm gonna tell them, hey, here's how you get started on Twitter. So I'm not changing anybody's habits. I'm just gonna target like the super early stage customers. And so I like starting that way. And then maybe later on, you know, a year or two into it, when you've got a ton of features, you figured out what works, what doesn't, you figured out what's good, then
0: you start targeting, you know, more established podcasters. But I would start off small. Another really cool thing about the way Janelle started is you've basically had people pay you to be on your new email list, right? Building email list is incredibly difficult depending on where where you're building it. So now all of a sudden you have, how many people was it? And you said 500 people or something like that. They all signed up. Now you've got a list of 500 people who all just paid to be on that list. And then you can keep updating them with information and then find out what products and services they need and so on and so forth. Yeah. Are we are we ready to move on to the next idea?
1: Well, let's let's wrap this one up. So sure. this idea basically copy what Janelle did, <laughs> look that up on Indie Hackers, and you can see what she did and copy that for the podcasting space. Create an info product for podcasters to be able to, to launch their launch their show and speed up that process, make it easier for them. That's a fantastic opportunity. People pay for it.
0: So the next idea that you brought to the table here, Corlin, was something they had around Creating a system that will help indie creators sell whatever they have to offer by bundling it uh, ostensibly with other creators' content or with their own content? Or give me a little bit more detail about what you're envisioning. So, broadly, I think what's happening right now is
2: are you guys familiar with the creator economy or the passion economy, as it's sometimes called? Slightly. I haven't
0: actually heard this term passion economy before, but so it's, coined it's like artists, by, musicians and yeah. stuff like that. So the,
2: the idea of the passion, so the idea of the creator economy is you've got all these people who aren't necessarily traditionally like creators. Like they're not like software engineers. They can't build software. And yet they're able to create something online now thanks to these big platforms. So like YouTube, Patreon, Twitch, Substack, like you can create some like form of content usually and make a living. Which is really cool because now like millions and millions of people who would never have had an online business have like some sort of online business based on a platform. And then the idea of a passion economy is like pretty similar, but I'm sure you've heard of like the gig economy. There's like a million different economies. The gig economy is this, this sort of idea that like Uber and Instacart are going to take over the world. And there's going to be Uber for X and Instacart for Y and everyone's going to be kind of this gig worker. And like everybody was excited about this like eight years ago, but now we're all like, oh, that would be like some sort of dystopian hellscape if everybody was just like summonable (laughs) at the, you know, click of a button on your app and like no one had any, you know, creativity because like one Uber driver is basically a commodity. It's completely fungible with another Uber driver. And so the passion economy is the rise of these platforms that give people more creativity and what they do. They're not just like one person who among many, it'll be something like, I don't know, 99designs where you browse designers and you actually find a designer whose style matches yours, right? Which is not what you're doing when you're looking for Uber drivers. And so I think the opportunity here is like, you should probably, again, build tools for people who are part of the passion economy. So the second idea is bundling. So if you think about all of these people who are putting out content, people who are putting out newsletters or trying to grow their YouTube channels or trying to grow their paid podcast. Uh, some people are on OnlyFans it's just really hard to get distribution. Like the number one difficult thing for these people isn't creating the content, it's getting anyone at all to watch it or use it. And so I think there's a lot of value in trying to create a distribution channel or marketing channel for these people so that they could use it. And so a really good example would be the Humble Bundle. It's uh, like this video game, basically bundle. They got bought by IGN a few years ago, so I don't even know if it's still around. But for like five or six years there, they were really big. And what they did was they would take Indie video games, which are video games made by just like one or two developers usually. And they said like, hey, indie people, your games are like really not doing that well. What if we bundle them all together on one page for like a week and we offer them at like a discount? And like we'll just get a ton of gamers to come in, make a huge press event about it. And like people will come buy all your games. And yeah, you're selling at at kind of a discount. But like at least you're going to be selling games instead of not selling games. And so almost everybody who had like these indie games was like, oh, yeah, sign me up. This is a great idea. And Humble Bundle got huge. They were eventually doing deals that were with like millions of dollars in sales and like every indie game dev wanted to be featured on a humble bundle. And so I wonder if you could do the same thing with all of this indie content that's coming from these people who are part of the passion economy, right? Like somebody's got a really great paid newsletter. Someone's got like a really great paid podcast or something, you know, maybe you do like the uh, the sales week, right? And you only do like a podcast and a paid newsletter and a YouTube channel or something that are all about sales and you offer them all like a discount. I bet you could probably get some creators to sign up for that, and I bet you people who are interested in these things will be like, "Oh shit!" Like a one-time sale. Like I might as well subscribe to these three things.
0: I'm never going to get this price uh, ever again. I'll call out too, just in terms of creating things that support people who are um, creating individual products. Like you've had uh, Sahil Lavinia on on your podcast before, mm-hmm. who started Gumroad. He said he started Gumroad as a weekend project, and now it's me. Now it's making three hundred fifty thousand dollars a month. That was a little while back, now it's making $790,000 a month. Yeah, he's and crushing he's it. And he kind of started it as, you know, his own little indie creator project, and now um, he's supporting other people. So, there's a lot of money to be made in supporting people who want to make some money off of their creativity. Yeah, he has a wild story where he
2: actually raised a ton of money for Gumroad early on, and then it just didn't go that well. He ended up, like, kind of almost shuttering the company, firing all his employees. like trying to give his investors their money back. He moved to like (laughs) small town like Provo, Utah, kind of like find himself and then like came back with a vengeance uh, and ran Gumroad for a while. It was kind of just like a solo founder, but now he's like built it back up, sort of bootstrapping it. And I think uh, the reason why it's making like 800 grand a month is because of this huge push for the creator economy where people are like, oh, I can make money online and not have to work a job or even learn how to code. Like sign me up if I can write a book or something and sell it on Gumroad. Like
0: I'm going to do that. So in terms of starting this one, so I suppose if you just want to start, basically you can just be on the lookout for individuals who are creating things that could be bundled together. Maybe just you reach out to them and say, hey, you've got a newsletter, you've got a podcast, you got a software. How about if I mm-hmm. try to sell them all together as a package, are you all in? If I make the sale, I make the sale. If I don't, I don't. Or are you just willing to give the discount? You could just start with a few small projects like that. That could be a good way yeah. to get going. I think- the challenge of trying to build something that
2: other businesses use as a distribution channel is that you have to figure out distribution yourself. Like you have to get really big <laughs> another in order to like be an attractive sort of proposition. And so I think it would be very important who you select upfront. Like I would probably target these creators who like aren't so big that they don't need you, but are big enough to have like some super fans. Like I would go on Twitter and see like, what are people raving about? What are people buying a lot of? Like for example, Daniel Vassalo has a course- I think that's like how to get big on Twitter. And I'd be like, okay, well, a lot of people are getting big on Twitter right now. Is, is there anybody else who has a similar course? And I would try to make sure I only like for my first few bundles package something together where the people have at least like a moderate to large audience and the things they're selling are something that people have a lot of demand for. Because if you bundle together like four or five different products and nobody actually wants, <laughs> then no one's going to get excited when you bundle together because nobody wants it. And also, if you like, you bundle together products from creators who don't have any audience whatsoever at first, then they're not going to be able to help you get the word out. So I think what you want to do is create like some sort of big, like just huge press event. You want to like drive a ton of traffic to your website all at once on your very first bundle. You want to launch on Product Hunt. You want to be on Indie Hackers, on Hacker News, all over Twitter, and you want to collect as many emails as possible. So that way, for your subsequent bundles, you basically have this huge email list you can email out to. In addition so you get this flywheel going where every bundle you get more and more traffic to it because you're growing your email list and more people are aware of kind of what you're doing. You can even create some sort of uh, like anticipation, you know, like countdown timer for the next bundle or something, or like, you know, maybe like time limits, you know, sign up now, you get even a bigger discount off the next bundle, et cetera. But I think a lot of it just comes down to like trying to maximize that press event. Because if you don't get a ton of traffic, then you're not providing value to the people who you are bundling their products to. The whole point is trying to get them sales.
1: One of the aspects of Humble Bundle that I'm curious your guys' opinion on is there's a charity aspect Mm -hmm. of it, and I wonder how much that figures into their success and how often people are buying it because they're like, no, I don't actually care about all these games, but maybe I'm paying a little bit more, but, you know, it's
2: going to charity, so whatever. Yeah, I think that was a core part of their sort of ethos. So I did Y Combinator with the Humble Bundle guys, and that was just kind of like who they were. They were like big into that kind of stuff, which I recommend to anyone starting any sort of business. Right, like you should try to solve like pretty boring, straightforward problems. Like people want to buy games. Like that's not some innovative new problem that was never before solved. But like I think the way you solve it, you should put a lot of your personality and your ethics and your beliefs into because that's what makes you stand out. Like boring problems, unique personality-driven solutions. So you could do a charity aspect. I think the way Humble Bundle did it was kind of like pay what you want, and then when you paid, you would say like I want this percentage to go to charity, I want this percentage to go to the indie creators, and I want this percentage to go to Humble Bundle. There's also other platforms that do similar things that aren't necessarily about bundling, but they're about deals. Like AppSumo, for example, I don't think they have any sort of charity aspect to what they do. (laughs) It's just straight get a deal, you know, and you attract different kinds of customers if you do that. So I would look at like, you know, who do you want to spend your time around? Like what kind of people do you want to attract? And I would shape your business based on that.
0: And AppSumo does an incredible job of getting people excited about these things, you know, I, I know so many people who, I, I don't know why I have that. I just bought it on AppSumo. It, was, yeah. it looked like a great deal. <laughs> people like deals, you know, if you make a, a <laughs> yeah. platform that's all about deals, like you're going to get deal hunters, who will compulsively buy anything that's cheap. Another action step here I think that's useful is to study some of these people that are more experienced with affiliate marketing or joint venture projects because mm-hmm. um, they'll probably have a lot of insights on how to make those things work. You might even consider partnering with someone who, who yeah. does a lot of projects like this. And things like this are going on. People are sending them up individually. Um, it's just not a system that you can totally. tap into. But if you recognize the patterns that work, then yeah. you've got a lot of power behind you. I think you could do some cool
2: creative marketing too because, again, like, the sort of common thread behind all the ideas that we're talking about today is like, you're trying to like make people better. You're trying to specifically like make people money. So if you did some sort of like indie course bundle where you're trying to get people, you know, to take these courses for cheaper, like people don't take courses for no reason. They take courses because they want to like learn how to code or learn how to build apps without code or learn how to make YouTube videos or edit podcasts or something. And so you could just do a lot of marketing that shows success stories. Like that's what we do with indie hackers. We kind of show off like, here is someone who's an indie hacker look, it's Janelle. She just made $25,000 in a month, right? When you hear stories like that, it's crazy inspirational. And the first question you have is like, how did she do that? And if the answer is that like, they found a tool and they found a course on your website that they got for super cheap, you know, uh, and you have all this material about people who are succeeding because they're taking these courses, then I think
0: that's a great way to sort of drive traffic to what you're doing. So I'm going to bring this in. It's actually interesting. I found this researching your next idea, uh, which we don't have to say what it is yet, but I found this article on Entrepreneur, the website, and it says, thinking about learning to code, these courses can help you grow in 2021. And then it's a, it's a list of courses at the top of the article. It says, disclosure, our goal is to feature products and services that we think you'll find interesting and useful. If you purchase them, entrepreneur may get a small share of the revenue from the sale from our commerce partners. And then literally the article clicks to another article, which has a bundle of learning to code different projects by different types of people that teach you how to learn to code. Mm-hmm. So very interesting how these things are already being done. And it can be as simple as just getting these resources together and then taking a cut of each. The other thing that's um, interesting to consider is as you're doing this, each of those individuals is gonna have a list ostensibly of their people. And that's kind of one of the powers of these joint venture projects is that now, not only can I market this newsletter to The newsletter people, the podcast people, I could market to them as well. And and you, you agree with each of the people that's doing it. We're going to do a big push together. It's not, it doesn't just become about you, the person who's bundling it becomes about all the individuals sharing it with their individual communities and spreading the word. And, and again, building a community around it. This is, uh, when I first launched indie
2: hackers, I started off by interviewing 10 different people and getting them to share their story about how they created their own business. And then when we launched it, it wasn't, just kind of the solo effort, like okay, I'm going to launch it. Like emailed all of them. We coordinated on the launch. We all uploaded it on Hacker News, and it shot to the top like instantly. And so I love this idea of like sort of you know combine forces, especially if you're combining forces with people who already have big audiences because they're selling courses and teaching people online. That's such an amplifier for your early stage marketing efforts.
1: To piggyback on that, I think one of the one of the things that's been most interesting in launching this project, Ethan and I have been doing the podcast for. 15 months or something like that, how willing people who are ahead of you are to help you out if you're taking action. So if you're out there and you have one of these ideas and you're like, uh, I don't know, I'd have, it sounds like it's a big ask for these folks to promote my stuff. If you, if you hustle and you demonstrate that, then people like Cortland and others out there, uh, will, will help promote it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Don't, don't, yeah email people asking for them to help you when you have nothing to show <laughs> but if you're actually like <laughs> right. building stuff you put together a newsletter you're like growing your Twitter like you're right like, you know maybe you can't code you're no coding stuff like if you actually proven that you're invested in something like people will trust you and if you haven't proven that you're invested in something you just kind of want a bunch of help before you've taken any steps
0: like no one's going to invest any time into you it's incredible um echoed in uh, one of Sheryl Sandberg's book I think it's lean in and she talks in that book about how she sees this pattern in women that they're they're looking for a mentor and they're just kind of thinking, do I just go up and ask someone to be my mentor? And she kind of says, so first of all, it doesn't just apply to women, it applies to all kinds of different people. And this idea that I'm just gonna approach someone and they're gonna be my mentor. And she says, no, people mentor people who are mentorable, who are doing something that's exciting to them that they wanna be a part of making it happen, right? So once you're taking action, once you're on track, then there's a pattern that people will come out of the woodwork even to mentor yeah. you and help you.
1: I think that's a great segue for this third idea that Corland has put out here. Teach people to code via building an online business, right? Get in motion by starting to build an on, but online business and you learn to code along the way. Let's talk more about that. Yeah.
2: So this is a very abstract idea that I've had, but like the guiding principle behind it is again, we've been talking about this entire episode people want to make money. People are incredibly driven to do things to make money. People will drive to an office and sit there and do something that's like uh, pain inducingly boring for 10 hours a day and then drive back home every day for their entire life because it makes them money. And so if you wanna start a business <laughs> and you want people to use what you're doing, like you should help them make money. And like one of the things that I think a lot of people wanna do nowadays is they wanna like, write code. People wanna learn how to code. More people than ever are trying to learn how to code. And like that statement has been true every year for the last like 15 years. And I don't think it's going to stop. I think still fewer than 1% of people on earth know how to code and probably a significant percentage of them don't know how to code well enough to do anything. But when I go look at like all these websites and books and courses, teaching people how to code, they're very abstract. They're like, learn how to write like a for loop, you know, learn how to do this random thing. And the ones that I think are doing the best are the ones that are most closely related to like, no, you're doing this to make money. Like this is going to get you a better lifestyle, a better job, et cetera. So for example, Lambda School, where you can go take Lambda School for free and then they don't, you don't basically pay them unless you get a job and then you pay them a percentage of your salary. And they're constantly doing what I was saying earlier. They're just putting out success story after success story. Like, here's someone who just went from making 25K a year as a janitor to making 105K a year as an entry-level software engineer, right? And people see that and they're like, oh, I want to make money. And then they actually go to Lambda School and they actually finish. And so one thing I think people should do, and this is kind of the, the heart of the idea, is if you're going to teach people to code, stop having them code like all these little meaningless like demo projects that don't do anything like have them code little apps and stuff that they can like put on a store that can actually make money like if i'm learning how to code and you know my first week or two like i make some html template and then like part of it is like hooking up to stripe and like suddenly i see that there's like five or ten dollars in my bank account because my html template was bought by somebody i'm gonna be like oh shit (laughs) like this is pretty cool like i created something of value and be much more likely to keep going And I would bet a lot of money that more people would rather learn to code on that platform, where at the end of it, they've picked up some business skills and they've like actually made some real money than sort of an abstract, you know, just learn to code. And then who knows what you'll do with these skills, but
0: like, you know, just learn to code in the abstract. I don't think that works very well. And I think most people who go that route end up quitting. That's really reminds me of a of a piece of a book. I haven't finished the whole book, but recently I've been going through a book called How to Not Be Wrong: The Power of math- Mathematical Thinking by Jordan Ellenberg, and he's a math guy. And he talks about how you know he teaches people math, and he tells them if they can make mistakes and still get partial credits if they make math errors on exams, but if they yeah. don't realize that they made a math error, then you know they definitely don't get credit. And his whole point is. He thinks that we, sp- we focus too much time on, on sort of rote learning how to do the basics of something. Mm-hmm. And we don't focus enough time on why we do it, you know, and mm-hmm. how can you utilize it. So then you get people who know how to do a regression line, but they actually can't interpret the results properly right. of the regression line. Because it's so- too,
2: all the theory is too disconnected from like the real world use cases of doing these things.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a huge pattern in our, just in our global society at this point in history is that we have these education systems that are like, let's teach you step-by-step all these things you need to know. And then six months later, all those things are irrelevant because the world has (laughs) changed, you know? So it's like, okay, well,
2: why do we need that? Yeah. Or even when you're learning it, you don't know why you're learning it or where it fits in. Like the way that I learned to code wasn't because I sat down, opened a book, read a bunch of stuff, and then like brilliantly memorized everything that I read and then was prepared to go into the world and code stuff. It was because I had a very specific idea in mind for an app I wanted to build and I knew how to build like 10% of it and the other 90%, I had no idea. So I would just like literally Google like, oh, how do I put this website online? And I would read a bunch of articles about putting the website online. Then I would check that box and do that part. And I'm like, how do I make it so I can save user data? Oh, there's this thing called a database. How does that work? Which database did I use? And I would, it was kind of like a pool method rather than like, uh, I think the traditional school thing is kind of like, we're going to teach you a bunch of stuff. Hopefully you remember
0: it and then you'll use it when you need it, which doesn't work. When you say pool method, is that like a... The name of a method or are you just pulling things together? No, it's like a description
2: or like the project or the thing you're trying to accomplish in the real world is pulling the knowledge out of you. Like you're pulled to to learn very specific things. So if Ah, I break it down, like there's a million things you can learn when you're trying to learn how to code. How do you know which ones you actually should learn? How do you know which ones are most important? Well, if you're trying to build an actual product you end up doing certain things like a hundred times. And guess what? You have to look that thing up a hundred times until you memorize it. And there's certain things you never do at all. So you don't even learn those things. And so you end up only learning the things that are actually necessary. And you learn the things that are more useful more frequently and more often because you're sort of pulled along by the thing you're actually trying to build. So uh, I like that approach to learning. If you're listening, you're trying to learn how to code and you don't have a specific project in mind that you're trying to code, uh, you're struggling. That's probably why. You should probably only learn to code if you're trying to code something very specific.
1: It's hard for me to picture what that would be, because I, I think uh, for aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, they have this idea that they need to build the next Uber or something massive in yeah. order for it to be uh, worthwhile. But you're describing much humbler starts, mm-hmm. right, where it's selling this HTML set or something like that. Um, and that's a mindset. It's, I guess I'm trying to put myself in those shoes. I don't shoes think it of, has to
0: be so humble. So I think what people are going to learn in a course like this is they're going to learn to utilize like packages and sets of things that are already in existence. They may not learn, need to code, right? So if they need a for loop, they'll learn how to code a for loop, but if they just need to learn how to code some JavaScript, you know, to uh, change the color on something, then they'll learn how to do that. And that's going to take care of what they need to learn or they need to do payment processing. Right.
1: Well, what I was getting at there is, is, um, it has to be both easy enough for someone to uh, be able to accomplish relatively as a novice, but also valuable enough for other people to want to pay for it. Right. And that to me seems like a, a hard intersection to hit.
2: Yeah. So I think there's a huge disconnect between like what's hard to build and what people find valuable. And I think the thing that a lot of indie hackers and early stage founders go into, the mindset a lot of people have is like, in order for something to be valuable, like I, it has to be like really hefty and big and complex. But like again, we were just talking about Janelle. Like Janelle went into a Notion document and typed out a bunch of notes and research, and people are paying fifty bucks for it. You know, like that didn't require any coding skills or any effort whatsoever. You know, I mean, it's not true. It required effort, but it wasn't like she needed to be a brilliant software engineer. And if you go to like Indie Hackers, for example, and you go to the product directory, something like twelve thousand products that people have uploaded it might be up like 13,000 now and you can actually filter down by tech skills founders can't code so you can only look at projects where people can't code you can do solo founders and you can filter down to like projects where the revenue is at least like you know $1,000 a month and there's a bunch of different stuff on here where people can't code and built stuff and they're making like $5,000 a month, $8,000 a month, $18,000 a month, $2,000 a month because they were able to get started doing something that didn't like involve code. And so I think if you're teaching people how to code They could probably build like a lot of this kind of stuff. Like you could build newsletter OS, but instead of doing it on Notion, like you could do it on your own website, right? And it's still the same value proposition, but it's a little bit better. It's a little bit more interactive because you like have learned how to do a for loop and make buttons interactive, et cetera. So I don't think like your level of skill really matters. I think what matters more is I think the bigger challenge
0: would be helping people identify ideas and such that are actually going to help them get paid. And lack you know, also just kind of like lack of intimidation around code, right? I yeah. think that's that's one thing that gets in people's way. If they think there's any coding involved, then they may be deterred. And and there's also this aspect, so I in, in research just this one I came across, you know, like you see these initiatives, you know, from the government, things like that, that people need to learn how to code, you know, look, Barack Obama coded a native, <laughs> the only president to write a computer program and yes. it can draw a square on a, on a, on a screen. Well, okay, that's not going to make him any money, but, no. but you know, that's all about getting people just to understand the value of learning to code. So one value is it does, it helps your thinking skills, right? It helps your planning and helps your creativity and it helps your logic, right? So why not, learn those things while starting a business, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just taking that abstract idea of just, you should learn to code. It'll be good for you 2 You're going to learn to code. You're going to have all these collateral benefits, but also you're going to learn how to start a business. I, lo- I think that's a great mix of things. And and in, in the end, you can also, when you propose the value, it'll be easier for people to be okay if they don't make a ton of money with their early totally. projects. But if they do make a little, you know, I say, oh, hey, listen, listen, I learned these things. I learned these basic skills and I also made a little bit of money. Hey, look at that. I like that you mentioned this sort of,
2: this whole everybody should learn to code. It's a kind of movement that's been so popular for the last 10 years, because that's a perfect example of not giving people a motivating reason. <laughs> Abstractly, everybody <laughs> should learn to code. You should. Like, what does that mean? Like, why? Like, learning to code is extremely difficult. It's extremely arduous. It takes a long time. It's confusing. You can feel dumb if you're not progressing for it. Like, there's a lot of downsides but no one's articulating like the upsides very well in a very compelling way. So if I started this, I would literally start with only the niche of people who are already trying to do this. There are already at least half a million people out there who really want to build an online business and who have tried to learn to code multiple times specifically because they want to make money online with some sort of business. I would anyone who doesn't know why they want to learn to code, I would just not even focus on them. I would like have my messaging being like, "Hey, you know, you're trying to build, you know, this online business but don't know how to code. Like we're gonna walk you through stuff. We're gonna have like really, really simple projects to start. Like you're actually gonna learn it. The goal here is not to make you like a Facebook level software engineer. The goal here is for you to be able to stand up your projects on your own without having to like hire a developer as a co founder. And I think you can do that. I think that's very possible. And I think people who are already motivated and who've already been trying to learn how to code to accomplish this goal will be very excited to do it.
1: One idea that complements that is I'm picturing say business owners who might need a small aspect something coded for them and the th- example that comes to mind is an excel macro and you can post it on there and say hey i'll pay you 10 bucks to code a macro that does this and that's a low enough price that that established developers wouldn't even go for it but someone novice might want to do that and it's also not time sensitive so trying to think of a, a, another way to
0: I guess, how to fill out that other side of the marketplace. So Chris and I went through a course about starting a business and Mm -hmm. about starting software business was one of the themes. It was a theme the year that I started. I don't know if it was when, when Chris did, that's the foundation. Interesting thing about that one is they, they sometimes bring in developers and they're like, you are not coding anything. (laughs) 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 You have to learn about how to be a business person. You have to learn about how to sell things like do not code anything, even know how. But that's not always the case. That's what's necessary for the people in that course. But there's also people who are successfully running a great project and they're making income because of it. And, you know, you're a great example, Cortland, right? I mean, you code and you have a business out of it and you're fully enjoying both aspects of it, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. Or you
0: could say no. (laughs) I mean, coding for me is the fun
2: part. Like when I first started my business, I was like, I want to code, but Really, coding isn't productive for me. What I need to do is do a bunch of interviews and market them and grow my email list. So for the whole first like two months of running my business, I didn't code almost anything. And then after it started picking up steam and I was generating revenue, I was like, okay, now I've got some leeway, some breathing room to do things that are fun, which for me is writing code.
0: Yeah. So I think, I think like courses and, and, and projects like this are really useful for those people. Who, they really want the enjoyment and the, the fulfillment, you know, and the exercise out of doing code as part of the business. And like we said, there's a lot of collateral advantages. If you hire yep. a programmer, now you can communicate with them even better. But then, you know, also getting those business skills. So like a half and half mix as opposed to a full one on or the other.
2: Yeah. And so again, I mentioned like Tara Reed earlier, who has a business apps without code. Like she's already doing this. Teaching people to build businesses with no code tools. If you can do this and teach people to use no code tools, you could certainly do it and teach people how to use coding tools.
0: So in getting started, is that maybe we just have a course? Is that, is that the first step, we think? Yeah. I mean,
2: I think you could do this in different ways. You could do it the way that Tara did it, where you literally just take on a few students and you just teach them. I think that's a really good way for you to learn. Because like, when you come out of the gate, like you're probably not going to know how to teach very well. You're gonna not, not going to know where students are going to get stuck. Like I've taught my brother and two friends to learn how to code, three friends. And now one of them works at Slack as a software engineer, just made a ton of money in the IPO earlier this year. And uh, with the Salesforce acquisition, another one uh, is my friend, Len who started her own indie hacker business. That's doing like 400 grand a year in revenue. And the, uh, my brother works with me on indie hackers was doing freelance software engineering before that. And another buddy who didn't, who didn't finish because he wasn't that interested in coding. But like I learned a lot from teaching people how to code and like now I'd be in a much better position. So if I wanted to start this, like I would actually take on like actual students, maybe five or six, like I'd go on Twitter and be like, Hey, I know how to code. Are you trying to learn how to code? I'll offer you like very cheap or free mentorship or something like pay me a hundred bucks for the next two weeks. Like I'll mentor you guarantee you, you're going to find people (laughs) who want to learn from real software engineers who are struggling to learn how to code. Use that to put together your lesson plan and then create like some sort of course. So you could either do a really big course which I wouldn't do because I don't like big splashy launches where it's all or nothing, like you're risking a ton. I would probably do something really small. Like I'm going to put together like an extremely small course. I'm building this one really specific type of app and you can go through it in like a day or two. And it will not only teach you some coding concepts, but at the end of it, you'll have like a little app. And then I would sell that or maybe even give that away for free. And maybe I do a bunch of those and then sell like a bigger course, or maybe I do a
0: bunch of those and sell them all for like small amounts. So just looking up, you know, similar projects, Codecademy maybe is maybe it's actually like a little bit of old news, but just that's something that comes to mind when I think about uh, learning to code. Their annual revenue is currently 30.5 million dollars a year, so there's certainly yeah. money in teaching people to code. For and sure. I don't think they were even that profitable to begin with. They didn't know what they were going to do with with that. And it turns seems like they make money from extra content beyond the basics, you know, quizzes, right. support, support from advisors and things like that. Um, so if you just kind of get, get started, there's certainly a market for this and this, oh, uh, for
2: sure. Education is like one of the biggest markets in particular, learning how to code is one of the biggest markets. I think a lot of people have trouble coming up with ideas because they think they've got to solve an unsolved problem. But the vast majority of ideas, like I was saying earlier, just solve like really boring, straightforward, like already solved problems. They just solve it in a different way than the existing competitors solve it that appeals to different people. So a lot of people are going to want to go to Codecademy because their friend told them about it or because the website looks pretty or for whatever reason, right? Some people would much prefer the sort of early stage founder, indie hacker approach where they learn to code by building a business because that's what what motivates them. And that's certainly not Codecademy's angle. So it's in, in some ways, it's kind of like a gap in the market. I don't see people teaching people to code in this way. I see people teaching people to code to get a software engineering job or because you want to learn how to think better or because of a million other reasons, but not because of this sort of like, I want to make money with my own business on the internet reason.
1: I think that's a good place to wrap. We're over time here. To the listener, take some action, follow through on, on what we've said here. Go pursue some of these ideas. Let us know what you think at the very least about some of these ideas that Cortland shared. If you have your own takes on them. We'd love to hear it. Email us at update at runwithit.fm with that information. Cortland, where can people go to find out more about you?
2: I am at csallen a l l e n on Twitter. I also uh, run Indie Hackers, so in your podcast player, search for the Indie Hackers podcast.
1: Great. Thanks for the time here. Good chatting with you, and looking forward to connecting later.